All right. Last week, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, we read uh, the beginning of the text. It says, in the beginning, God. Remember, it doesn't say in the beginning, man. It doesn't say in the beginning, humanity. It doesn't say in the beginning, the heavens and the earth. It says in the beginning, God, because the Bible is not fundamentally about man. The Bible is not primarily about creation, not primarily about the heavens and the earth. It is primarily about God. And so that's where we started. It's primarily about God. And then we start to understand who we are when we understand that he is creator of all things. And Colossians 1 tells us not just creator of all things, but that all things were created for him. And so we are one of those created things created for him. So we start to understand where our value, where our significance, where our dignity comes from, comes from the fact that he made us, and according to Genesis 1.27, made us in his image. And so we pause with that and we sit back and we say, okay, so that means that I'm valuable to the Lord regardless of my economic or professional successes or failures. I'm valuable to the Lord regardless of how well my kids do in any of their endeavors or how poorly they do in any of their endeavors. That doesn't give me more worth to God because I already have infinite worth in that I'm made in his image and made by him. So as we move forward from this idea that God is creator of all things, all things have been created, Colossians 1.16, for him, we're part of that creation. We ask the question, how does the creation then live with the creator? If we're made for him, what does it look like to live in his presence, to yield to his will, to what he's called us to do? As we look at Genesis 1 and 2, it's interesting to note that Genesis 1 uses the Hebrew word for God, Elohim. And the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, captures the essence of his bigness, his power, his rule, his sovereign over all things. And then in chapter 2, when we transition to this sort of intimate account of God's creation of humanity, the crown jewel of his creation, Yahweh is inserted, the Hebrew word Yahweh, his name next to Elohim. And so we see this bigness, this powerful, this ruling name of God. And then as he creates humanity, Yahweh Elohim, that he is personal, that he is knowable, that he is attentive, that he is present with his creation. And so just in the names of God, we see that in creation, Adam and Eve, humanity is set up to do well. Enter the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent is described as crafty. I want to pick it up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. We'll read verses 4 through 11 together, uh, describing what is commonly referred to as the fall. Uh, this is the moment where this crafty serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And the serpent says, that's not what God meant. God said you would die, but you won't die. You'll actually be like him. God said something bad will happen. Something bad won't happen. The serpent says something good's going to happen instead. Trust me. Famous last words. Genesis 3, starting in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent promises something good, and we're going to see that sin is going to destroy our relationship with God. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some of her some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew what they and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God and among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said to him, who told you? That you were naked, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam and Eve are in the garden. Eve eats of the fruit of the tree that God had told her and Adam not to, or they would surely die. Something interesting happens. She doesn't surely die. Maybe God is holding out on them. Maybe this is something good. Maybe God's overly restrictive policies are unnecessary. Maybe what he said was bad isn't actually bad, is good. And so Adam sees that she doesn't die, takes and eats as well. Have you ever been there where you doubted whether something God said was bad was actually bad? bad and as you walked that road a bit what he said was bad didn't seem to be all that bad to you some of you uh, have maybe given yourself to your career we know the first commandment uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me the great command in the new testament you shall love the lord your god with all your heart soul your strength and your mind Uh, the idea is you shall have no other gods before the only the one the true God and some of us have given ourselves to our careers and we have made it a God we have made it an object of worship we have chosen it over everything else and for a time it hasn't felt that bad maybe you've been promoted and that felt good maybe you got a raise and that felt good maybe you were affirmed in your role affirmed as a person affirmed as a man affirmed as a woman affirmed for your competence affirmed for your intelligence and that felt good Adam and Eve are about to find out that something that can look good, something that could taste good, something that could feel good, isn't in fact all that good. So they eat the fruit. They become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And what is the very first thing that they do? They try to hide it, don't they? The very first thing that they do, fig leaves and they make some boxer briefs. They try to hide it. Isn't it interesting that thousands of years later we do the same thing, keeping our sin, attempting to keep our sin 
hidden from God and hidden from others. Uh, When we find that we hide our sin, it often comes back to inflated view of self and a deflated view of God, a sense that we can measure up and have maybe just barely missed the mark, so we'll keep trying or keep our failure hidden, and a deflated view of God, not understanding uh, the kindness and the mercy and the gentleness of God. And so they make the uh, fig leaf underwear, and then they go running into hiding. And what happens? God comes calling, something that tasted good. The serpent said, this is good to make you wise and to make you like God. And then when they did it, how quickly the allure, how quickly the shininess of sin wore off. And now they are burdened by guilt and shame. It's kind of like if you've ever had uh, rats in your house. We had some in our home in California. They were right over the bedroom for like a month. It was the worst sound I think I've ever heard. And how did we catch them? Giant rat traps with a huge dollop of peanut butter. Some of you like peanut butter. Some of you hate peanut butter. I love peanut butter. I bet the rats love the smell of that peanut butter. I bet the rats love the taste of the first bite of peanut butter. I bet they thought jackpot. Right? Until the trap springs. Right? Until the trap springs. This is where Adam and Eve are. The trap has sprung. And now they're hiding from God and covering their sin. And the funny thing is, is God comes in to the garden. Where are you? What have you done? As if he doesn't know. Right. And they hide as if he can't see them. And so we've just got to understand that that for many of us who are hiding our sin, we've got a God that wants to do something with it. We have a God that wants to address it. We have a God that is capable of forgiving it. We have a God who wants to deal with it. And for many of us, the thing that has kept God from dealing with it is our unwillingness to share it, is our hiding it, attempting to hide it from him and hiding it from others. And God comes to them, where are you? Have you eaten of the tree? God knows that they ate of the tree. God knows where they're at. He knows your sin. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've done. And he comes to them and says, did you eat of the fruit of the tree? that I told you not to. Let's pick back up in verses 14 and 19 as Adam and Eve uh, are identified and the Lord is going to respond to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam in that order. Chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, I will put strife between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the 16, to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Verse 17 to the man. Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of all the days of your life. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Essentially what God does is, is says, all of the blessing that I have pronounced over you, all of the blessing that I have promised you is now going to be tainted, is now going to be strained because of what you've done. And so first to the serpent, just an extraordinary passage where he says, the offspring of Eve will crush your head. And we understand that to be the very first messianic prophecy in the Bible, the very first time where we're given a picture, we're given a prediction, a prophecy that points us to Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 4 or 3 speaks to this. Uh, yes, Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.14, talking about Jesus, says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he, through death, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We understand that the one who would eventually crush the head of the serpent would be Jesus. So the Lord says to the serpent, I will see you later. He says to Eve, blessing was pronounced upon you, uh, joy in multiplying, and now that is going to be painful. You were commissioned to go and to fill the earth, and now that is going to hurt. And in relationship to this covenantal relationship, marriage that was supposed to be a blessing, this complementary gifting coming together. Now it's going to be unnatural. Now you're going to fight against each other. Now the blessing is going to, in many ways, become a curse, a strain. And to Adam, the blessing to rule over creation, to subdue it, is now going to be difficult. The land is going to fight against you. And so you're going to toil all your life and then you're going to return to the dust. And so we see the unique and special blessing that God gave to Adam and Eve is now strained, is now tainted, is now distorted. And so we, we feel that in life, and we say, why God, why? And so as we feel that in life, we should it should cause us to remember that this is not what God intended for us. This is not what God intended for us. The consequences of sin go far and wide. Uh, let's pick back up in Genesis 3. It's kind of an interesting thing that the Lord does next. After pronouncing these curses, after pronouncing the judgment upon them for their sin, after basically saying, I had all this lined up perfectly for you, and now all of it is going to be strained, stressed, it's going to fight against you. It's going to be less than what I had designed you for. It's going to be less than what I had created for you. In the midst of that judgment, we see a profound act of mercy and compassion. Let's pick up verses 21 through 24, the last few verses of chapter 3. It says this, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. It says, then the Lord God said, Behold, 
The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned in every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So two really interesting things here. First of all, the Lord looks at Adam and Eve, and he sees these leaves, this leafy underwear, and, and says, that's not going to do it, and takes life for the very first time. Blood is shed so that Adam and Eve could be covered, and we get a very the very first picture of a blood sacrifice. Uh, Hebrews also speaks to the significance of blood as a necessary component for sacrifice. In chapter 9, verse 22, it says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Adam and Eve's leafy underwear couldn't hide their nakedness, couldn't hide their sin and their shame. God came and shed blood and in that way made a covering for them. And as we look forward to Jesus, it was Jesus shed blood that would then make a covering sufficient for us. And so we see the compassion, the mercy of the Lord to step in and say, you guys look ridiculous. You can't fix what you broke. You don't even understand what you broke. Let me fix this does that in two ways, saying, one, through the serpent, I'll see you later, and then two, he makes a covering from them with the sacrifice of an animal that is sufficient to cover their nakedness. The next thing he does is, is he ushers them out of the garden, and that might at first glance seem like a harsh or severe thing. And come on, it was just one fruit. What's the big deal? No need for the garden to go to waste, but he leads them out. He puts cherubim to guard it, a flaming sword. And, and so what's interesting to me about the garden is there's some really significant parallels between the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle that they, the Israelites had when they were in the wilderness, and the temple. And so one of those similarities is it says that they put the guards at the east end of the garden. And so we might make an assumption that the garden faced toward the east, or the entrance, or the pathway in was toward the east. Uh, the Bible is clear that both the tabernacle and the temple also faced east. Another thing that the Lord does is he puts uh, cherubim there to block the entrance. Uh, there, in a sense, to stand guard, to watch over, to keep Adam and Eve out. Because if they get back in and they eat of that tree, their condition will be permanent. And so he puts cherubim there. And we understand that cherubim are significant in the design of both the tabernacle and the temple, engraved in the walls even. In fact, Exodus 25 speaks to the significance of cherubim and mentions their, uh, where they're located. Let me, I'll just read Exodus 25, 22. The Lord to Moses, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, and I will speak with you about all that I will give to you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the cherubim are right there 
in the tabernacle, in this place where God is going to speak to Moses. This is just uh, the pinnacle of this idea of God with us in the Old Testament. And we see cherubim in the garden. We see cherubim in the tabernacle. We see cherubim in the temple. Uh, The third thing is is we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that the garden is uh, filled with beautiful things, filled with precious stones. And of course, we know about Solomon's temple and how precious that was. And in the tabernacle where everyone brings their gold and brings their jewelry and they use it to create this special place. And and so this idea of God with us is really significant as the presence of the Lord there in the garden, the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord in the temple. And the emphasis causes us to see that the greatest thing lost in the garden is not the relationship between man and woman. The greatest thing lost in the garden is not now pain in childbearing, although although that's no small thing. The greatest thing lost in the garden is not that we're going to have thorns and blackberry bushes all over Douglas County and that the land isn't going to produce what we want it to produce as fast as we want it to produce it. What we see is the greatest thing that was lost, the greatest travesty, is the alienation of God and man, the alienation of Adam and Eve from God's presence, the distance now created by their sin and his holiness. And so they are kicked out of the garden, and we see just total and complete devastation of sin in our lives and hearts as it relates to the relationship that we have with the Lord. Now, the next few chapters uh, go far and wide, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, to describe the extent of what sin did in a relatively short amount of time. The next story that we see is from chapter 4, and it's Cain and Abel. And so what we see in Cain and Abel is two boys of Adam and Eve, right? You'd think that Adam and Eve would have made sure that their kids were following the Lord. They had seen firsthand the great loss from assaulting his holiness, from rejecting his rule. You would think that they would have passed that on to their boys. But we see Cain and Abel. We see Abel who offers a pure sacrifice, right? He had chosen God above all things, and he offers a sacrifice to God, and God accepts it. And then we see in contrast Cain, the other son, Abel's brother, who chooses everything else but God and tries to appease God with an inauthentic sacrifice, tries to just do something that God has sort of told him to do, thinking, if I do this, God will be happy with me and I can move on and go about my merry way. And God comes and he taps Cain on the shoulder and he says, that's not how it works. And he doesn't accept his offering, right? And Cain is ticked. Uh, Pick it up in Genesis 4, verses 6 through 12. Cain is ticked. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Did the same thing his mom and dad did. Tried to hide. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? 
the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain was corrupt, and it corrupted his relationship with the Lord, and his corrupt relationship with the Lord led to jealousy, led to envy, and it corrupted his relationship with his brother. Adam and Eve don't just lose one son. Adam and Eve lose two sons as Cain is sent out to be a wanderer, to be a vagrant, and we see the ripple effect through a family that doesn't just destroy our relationship with the Lord, but destroys our relationships with each other. The text continues a few chapters later. Uh, We see the story of Noah, and we see that sin has destroyed our relationship with God. Sin has destroyed our relationship with each other, and sin has destroyed our capacity to receive God's blessing. Uh, Pick up the story in Noah of chapter 6. I'll just read 11, 12, and 13 from chapter 6. And essentially, we see God uh, looking out over the face of the earth and saying, this is not what I wanted for you all. Right? There becomes a tipping point, and we'll see that often in the Old Testament, where God allows people to go their own way for a period of time and then steps in and says, this is not what I wanted for you. This is not just the wrong way. This is not just a different way. This is an assault on his holiness, a rejection of his rule, and he must, as a holy God, step in. Genesis 6, 11, 12, 13. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. All that God had intended, all the good that he had blessed them for, they've become wholly corrupt and unable to receive his blessing. Wholly corrupt and unable to walk in his good path. Wholly corrupt and unable to live in his presence. And God with us. Wholly corrupt and unable to yield to his leading and walk the good road that he had for them. We see our relationship with God is destroyed. Our relationship with others is destroyed. Our capacity to take hold of his blessing destroyed. And then we see in Genesis 11, this weird story, Tower of Babel. These men and women, this community that wants to make a name for itself, right? They were made to worship God and they want to worship themselves. They were made to make much of God and they want to make much of themselves. They were made to point to God. They were made for God. And they want people to come into town, see this great monument that they've built, and they want the credit. They want to make a name for themselves. And God comes in and he scatters them all over by confusing their language. And we see that sin has destroyed our capacity for worship. Where we were designed to worship God, it is now our default, it is now our predisposition to want to worship ourselves and make much of ourselves. And so we see this far and wide reach of sin in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. We see that the destruction is just much greater than we ever imagined. And if you're there this morning relating to Adam and Eve, 
relating to this idea of hiding uh, your sin, not wanting to be found out, my guess is you can also relate to the reality that what Satan said was shiny and would taste good and they'd make one wise didn't do any of those things. You saw the little blip on the screen for the Krispy Kreme uh, donuts. Krispy Kreme donuts are wonderful. It is a great fundraiser for Safe Haven Ministry. But I promise you, if you eat six of those Krispy Kreme donuts in three or four minutes, they're going to look good, they're going to smell good, and they're going to taste good, but they're going to feel terrible in a very short amount of time. You see how quickly the allure, the shininess of sin wears off and is replaced by guilt and by shame. And the effects are far and wide in our lives with the Lord, in our family, with our spouse, with our kids, with everybody that we come into contact with, with our capacity to receive blessing from God and our capacity to worship God. And, and so we, we've just got to see that it's not just the Old Testament. This isn't just Genesis 1 through 11, and then everything gets better, and all of this sort of unlovely stuff uh, fades away. Theologians talk about two aspects of sin, of the fall. One is original sin, and one of the ways that original sin is described is that we are born with a corrupt nature. In other words, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners, that we're born with a corrupt nature, with a desire to sin, an attractiveness to sin, a predisposition to sin. We're drawn to sin. We don't need to be taught how to do bad things. We need to be taught how to do good things. We don't need to be disciplined to keep from doing good things. We need to be disciplined to be kept from doing bad things because that's the way that our heart and our spirit wander. Uh, that idea of original sin, that we are created with a corrupt nature. And the other aspect that theologians talk about is what's called imputed sin. Adam and Eve were guilty because of what they did. Guilty before the Lord. Alienated from the Lord. And the idea being that all saints are born with imputed sin. Alienated from God. Guilty before him and deserving of death. And so that may cause some of us to say what Cain said to the Lord in Genesis 4.13 when God says, you will be cursed, you must go, and you will be a wanderer, and you will be a vagrant. And Cain says in Genesis 4.13, he said, this is too great of a punishment for me to bear. And God had a plan for Cain. He puts a mark on Cain so that people won't kill him, so that as he's wandering, he won't run into someone and they'll go, oh, you're Cain, and they'll take his life. He puts a mark on Cain to protect him, to preserve him. A great act of mercy in spite of Cain's great offense. God has a plan for us too. Uh, insert, I guess, here Romans 5. If you have your Bibles, uh, flip over, a long ways over, to Romans chapter 5. I'll just read a couple verses uh, from that chapter. I'll read uh, 12, 12, 18, and 19 as we see that Jesus is going to come and his shed blood is going to make a sufficient covering uh, for our original sin, this corrupt nature that we have, and the imputed sin, this guilty uh, declaration that hangs over all of our heads. Uh, Romans 5, starting verse 12, says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, 
fast forward to verse 18. First, we see that sin came into the world through one man, and that death spread through that fall. Verse 18 picks it up from there and says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We see in that text that the many will be made righteous. Second uh, Corinthians 5 speaks to that. Saying, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5:21. Something similar. For our sake, he made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So when we think about that idea of imputed sin, that we are guilty, that we stand before a judge and we are guilty, we understand that God sent Jesus to be sin. He sent him who to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So I'm not righteous because of anything I've done or said. I'm not anything of righteous, righteous because of something I might have the capacity one day to do or to achieve. I'm righteous based on the merit of Jesus' righteousness. His righteousness is applied to my account. This is like going into the bank to withdraw $20 and discovering that there's $10 million in your bank account. His righteousness applied to your account. Jesus takes care of our imputed guilt. And then you remember when Jesus was talking to his followers and he said, it's actually really good if I go away from you. And they're thinking, no, it's not actually really good if you go away from us. But he says, no, it is good if I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to guide you. It's going to direct you. It's going to lead you. It's going to teach you. It's going to remind you of the things that I've said. It's going to give you the words to speak. It's going to lead you in the path so that you can follow me. And so in this way, we see that Jesus, through his death, dealt with imputed sin and making us righteous if we follow him. Uh, Jesus, in sending us the Spirit, the process called sanctification, uh, deals with this corrupted nature where the Spirit works in partnership with us to remove that sin from us and to make us more like Jesus in word, more like Jesus in thought more like Jesus in mind, more like Jesus in action in this life. And so we see in Jesus the totality of our needs met and addressed. And here we are with leafy underwear, right? Trying to figure out how to do it ourselves. Trying to make the best of the mess that we've made ourselves, wondering why we itch, right? Leafy underwear, trying to do good works to earn God's favor, trying to do good things, sin less, swear less, lose our temper less, be kind more, be generous more, even though we don't want to be, trying to earn God's favor. And we wonder with that leafy underwear why we itch. God says, you look silly. Takes the shedding of blood and he provided covering for Adam and Eve, and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, provides a covering for us. And, and so this this is the gospel, that, that we can't earn his favor, we can't earn his approval, uh, but we can follow him. Like our job is to yield uh, to his spirit and follow him. And so some of you are here, uh, but just by way of a wrap-up, some of you are here and 
really trying to clean your life up the best that you can, thinking that if you can do a little bit better in these areas, that most certainly will grant you favor with God. And when your time comes, uh, when you die, when you meet Jesus face to face, you'll say, I did a pretty good job. I did a lot better than my brother. I did a pretty good job. If you looked at my neighbor across the street, you would know that I did a pretty good job. And Jesus says, you look silly. You don't understand what's broken. You don't understand the holiness of God. You can't fix that with fig leaves. It needs the shedding of blood. And so if you're here and you're trying to clean yourself up, you can't clean that up. So my call to you today would be to yield to the Lord and say, I can't, but I know you can. I want to follow you. Take my life. Forgive me. Make me whole. Uh, Some of you are here and uh, just hiding your sin. And maybe that's all you've been able to think about this morning is the sin that you're now, in fact, hiding. The sin that you now, in fact, don't want anyone to know about, hear about, discover ever under any circumstances. And we've just got to see that the things that we hide, we tend to cling to. The things that we cling to tend to define us. God comes looking. The Lord comes looking for Adam and Eve. The Lord wanted to do something about it and finds them hiding in the shadows. If you're here this morning and you're hiding your sin from yourself, hiding your sin from others, trying to hide your sin from the Lord, I say let go doesn't have to define you. The mercy of God in these 11 chapters is extraordinary, right? Adam and Eve, colossal blunder, and he says, I'm going to keep this from becoming permanent and get you out of the garden so you can't do more damage. Cain and Abel, colossal blunder. God says, Cain, you're out. Just judgment was necessary, but mercy was also present as he puts that mark on him to say, but no one will take your life. The story of Noah, colossal blunder, the entire earth. But what happens as soon as Noah and the family come off the boat, the rainbow and God's promise that there will never be a flood again to wipe away all of humanity. And he blesses them and commissions them to be fruitful and multiply. We see the mercy of God in the presence of these just colossal blunders, these egregious assaults on his character and his holiness, these egregious rejections of his rule. So if you're here today and you're hiding it, don't hide anymore. Maybe this morning is the moment where you have a moment with the Lord and confess it to him. We're going to have prayer team up here. Uh, They'll come forward during the last song. Confess it to the Lord. I would encourage you to confess it to someone who just pray for you and encourage you and can give you a hug uh, and say, go and sin no more. Make this day the moment where we don't belittle our sin. We don't ignore our sin. We don't blame others for sin. We identify it. and We give it to the Lord, knowing it is an egregious offense, but we have a merciful God. Let's pray. Lord, convict our hearts of sin this week. Don't let us continue to wallow in the mud of where we've been, of what we've done, of who we were. Lord, help us to take ownership, to claim the name of your Son and this new identity we have that 
his righteousness, that Jesus' righteousness is applied to our account, that according to 2 Corinthians 5, that we are a new creation. We aren't who we once were. We're not defined by what we once did. Lord, together we, we just we confess our sin to you. It is egregious. It is heinous. Lord, it is an assault on your righteousness. It is a rejection of your rule. We thank you for your mercy. Pray that as we come to have a higher view of you, that we would come forward in our weakness, that we would come out from behind the bushes, so to speak, and understand that we have a loving Father waiting to embrace us who makes all things new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.